Hi, my name is Gunnar Froh and I'm your host on the Wonder Mobility Podcast. All right, welcome back to the Wunder Mobility Podcast. And I'm here live today with Francois Hüllinger. Welcome to Hamburg. Thank you so much for the invitation and thank you for not mispronouncing my name. I know it sounds a bit German, but I'm actually French and I'm the deputy CEO of Troupi, the moped company based in Paris. Yeah, and I want to talk a lot more about this. We just had lunch already together. So I have a bunch of ideas floating in my head, stuff that's going on in your company. You just came to Troupi rather recently, about a year ago. But maybe tell us a bit about yourself before we talk also more about Troopy. You had done work in mobility before. What did you do before? How did you end up there? Well, that's actually a long story, but I will try to, to remain concise about that. Um, so I'm working for the last 10 years. And after um, five years in FMCG, so nothing to do with mobility, I jumped to consulting, especially in pricing in a German company called Simon Courer. And then I had a chance to go to Flixbus, uh, working directly with uh, Johan uh, on the B2B part. So a, a smaller slice of the Flixbus business was super interesting because for me, it got me to know uh, for two years, what is mobility and who are the key stakeholders. And that's this experience probably who drove me into uh, mobility in general. And one day I got a call from Axel Villaseca, my president explaining me that Troopy 1.0 wanted to evolve to Troopy 2.0 with a massive fleet of Yamaha e-mopeds. And here I am. It's a lot of um, interesting points in that you mentioned Simon Kucher along the way. Not everyone's familiar, but they are the, let's say, pricing specialists in consulting. Hermann Simon was uh, also visiting us some years ago in the office, actually. Professor Simon, old guy who founded it, but they are the marketing, the pricing specialists. You're probably going, let's say, Crazy looking at pricing in uh, shared micromobility today because it's quite simple. We talked a little bit about it during lunch. There could be much more done also towards profitability. And then Flixbus, you worked on the B2B business of Flixbus. Can you talk just a few sentences about that? What's the B2B business there? Most of us are just aware of the consumer product for Flixbus. Of course, um, it was back in 2015 that uh, Johan and his team had the idea to launch the B2B part. The idea was, would, would be to say uh, B2C is quite easy. You and I, we take a ticket from Hamburg to Amsterdam and we take those green buses that everybody is super familiar about. But there is also a market section that was not really tapped so far, which is the B2B part, which means a school, uh, association, a sports club. They need to travel by bus from time to time. But there is only one customer, which is basically the association, and they pay X hundred euro to travel. How can we optimize that? First of all, when it comes to price, but also when it comes to features. And I joined this uh, story in back in 2018. And that was really the time when we developed a super cool platform to allow people to do, do those online booking because beforehand, and it might sound a bit funny now to, to say that in 2023, mm -hmm. but if a sports club would have to travel by bus, they would take their phone, mm -hmm. call the, the bus company next door and say, okay, guy, how much for this travel? With, with our comparison um, platform, we, we could actually provide a price. And then we had X thousand bus operator register and we just dispatch. And I arrived and when really charter was starting to skyrocket just before COVID, obviously. And that was super exciting because we were really starting to get more and more dominant on the markets. I didn't realize Flixbus had this part of their business. And it's interesting that you mentioned also um, like the years, it's only a few years ago uh, when this was uh, launched. Talks a little bit about the state of 
you know, transformation in mobility, this huge, you know, bus, uh, B2B bus business, only then getting uh, digitized by Flixbus in this way. And then you mentioned you came, you were hired into Troopy to turn a Troopy 1.0 into a 2.0. Troopy is kind of a brand already known in the space a lot. I think five and a half years old or so. Paris, moped sharing operator today. How would you describe 1.0 and What can you already share about the 2.0 vision? I think that's uh, interesting for um, the auditors to understand what Troopy was before, because probably when they hear that, they can just type on the website and see what we are doing. And I think we are doing it quite well. But back in the days, 2017, I mean, the whole story of my president is quite remarkable to speak about. So my president, Axel Villaseca, he's the heir of the largest uh, motorcycle and auto dealership in France. It's a huge company called Group Chapa. They do a hundred million euro revenue per year. And in 20... Founded in 1874 or something like this, right? Exactly. Very traditional you know. company. So if you listen to some interviews, it's actually quite funny because he, he can explain you what mobility was in 1910, you know, when uh -huh. basically there was no mobility except Group Chapa who created the first carriage to go to the front of First World War, you know? Really? Yeah, they started Yamaha in 1973 where nobody else was doing Japanese brand. Mm -hmm. That being said, in 2015, if I'm correct, CityScoot starts their first scooters in the streets, something like that. And he goes to San Francisco to, to Scoot to see how it works. Basically, what is a sharing company? And he always tells me that was super interesting. But when you arrive in a company that provides different type of scooter for the same service, basically there's different mopeds, they had different brands. So he was like, yeah, that, that cannot work, right? So his idea was, was to say, I'm a distributor of, of mopeds. Then I call all the moped company until somebody <laughs> picks up and say, okay, let's do it together. Then uh, Eric Desen, the CEO of Yamaha uh, Europe said, okay, let's go, but we don't have electric moped yet. It was 2017. We have those nice uh, Tricity, three wheelers, Yamaha mopeds. Let's make a try in Paris. And just for you to understand for today in 2023, it's so obvious that mobility is about putting something in the street, but for a dealer that kept on selling for years and years in a, in a, in a dealership, in a, in a shop, putting a moped staying in the street in the night, that's a nightmare, right? Mm -hmm. You just expect the worst. Yeah. And so Axel started by 25, 50, 100 scooters in the street. And then he was like, yeah, okay, I need to really provide value to, to the user. So I will go for a 125cc, so it's a really specific type of scooter where people can commute from Paris to the urban area. Mm -hmm. uh, we are here today in Hamburg. It's a bit, if I would say, with the scooter, you can go to the airport and leave it there, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was the idea. So that's Troopy 1.0. So he basically excubates this project from Group Chapa, has a small office, basically twice the size of our box today, mm -hmm. and he hires six, seven people just to do it, you know? And... It's a, it's a good success for the, the size of the project. And at some point in 2020, I would say Yamaha says, okay, we come with electric. But with COVID and all the delays, it only comes in 2022. And there at that time, he negotiates a huge amount of mopeds that, that can be put in the street, but he also negotiates an exclusivity, which is super cool for Troopy that will then evolve from a small caterpillar mm -hmm. to hopefully a really nice butterfly. But at some point, he also realizes that now we need to scale. We need to really become a super huge company. I mean, mm -hmm. you've experienced that the hyper growth structuration mm -hmm. and stuff. And so there I, there I come because in January, 2022, 
I arrive in this old crappy building. We are six on the floor, basically, building the next rupee. Now, today, we are around 70 uh, in a new, tiny, but quite nice office in Paris. Uh, applied for Paris Tender. We expect to have 1,600 uh, mopeds in the street. That's a, a new life, basically. Later this year already, no? Yeah. 1,600. Yeah, definitely. So the, the to arrive this summer, I believe. Uh, our flow plan is uh, 1,600 by July. We signed for at least 3,000 by next July. So um, that's going to be, uh, I would say, our ground basis to, to, to work. Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully, we, we get into uh, Paris City, which is a super good flag flagship for us, but also a good experimentation to see how we can manage such a large fleet. And to do so, obviously, we get, um, we get to have a, a warehouse, 2,000 square meter uh, warehouse uh, in Paris City in front of all our competitors. Mm -hmm. That's a journey. A number of years of gathering the experience, carefully, it sounds like, of course. It's like your own money actually involved. It's not VC money from the beginning. I mean, your president's money, of course, your family's money. And then eventually, when the market gets ready and you get access to these electric mopeds, make a deal with Yamaha. Last year, it was also announced some external funding, a large deal for vehicles and charging stations. And then you're about to roll out and you are headquartered in a market that's one of the most interesting sharing cities in Europe. I would say um, London is probably the most interesting like ride-hailing city, but Paris the most interesting, maybe potentially vehicle-sharing cities. He's way up there with Barcelona and so on. And can you talk a little bit about like what's the situation in Paris for micromobility, maybe mopeds in particular? And you mentioned maybe if we'll be a part of it, there's a tender situation coming up. How are they running this? What's at stake at the moment? in Paris? I think that's um, what you mentioned. Is, is, it's exact because um, in Europe, there might be four or five major cities when it comes to mobility, right? I mean, most of your clients probably come from there. You mentioned Barcelona, Paris. Of course, we can add Berlin and some other one. Paris is quite specific city because I think it's a pioneer in a lot of uh, part of the mobility. Mm -hmm. You have the largest train network. You have the largest metro network. You have a, probably the largest fleet of uh, normal bikes that can be shared, what we call Vélib in Paris. Used to be Autolib, the pioneer for free-floating cars. Exactly. You had the Autolib at that time, which was probably too much of a pioneer. But yeah. uh, I think the idea was cool and it was uh, financed by Vincent Bolloré. So mm -hmm. Paris, it's really, I would say, um, the, the mayor and its team, and of course, I, I don't speak from, for, for themselves, but... They want to try, they want to provide, they want to uh, make the city peaceful and happier for everybody. And that comes also with a shared mobility. Mm -hmm. We see that there is a extensive usage. So at some point, it means that there is a need. When it comes to um, mopeds, I think it, it, it developed by, by itself. CityScoot was definitely the, the first big brand to, mm -hmm. to evolve. And again, kudos to them because what they've done is amazing, to be honest. Starting from scratch to have... At some point, they had like 7,000 all in Europe uh, mopeds, which is insane. Now, I think they shrinked a bit more their fleet to kind of a, a normal size where they can reach profitability. We also have seen now uh, Yego arriving, Kultra mm -hmm. arriving. We were there from also m much more the very beginning, but on a, on a different kind of niche, which is the 125cc that I mentioned before. And now we go to the 50cc, so L1e electric, to uh, provide more massive market because there is a demand. When it comes to the tender, for instance, the tender allows three operators, mm -hmm. which each of them can have up to 3,000 3, mopeds, which means you can have up to 9,000 mopeds in the streets of Paris. How many do you estimate are there today? 
uh, today, it's quite easy. They're around 4,500. So basically, when we will have this 1,600 scooters uh, in July, we will have the largest fleet with city scoot. Then Kultra and Diego, they might have around 800 to 1,000. So mm -hmm. you make the calculations. And this tender will be for how long? So, so that's also why this tender is important and because the tender lasts for five years. Yeah. So it's a massive investment for each and every operator. Does that mean that the market in Paris for moped sharing is kept at 9,000 vehicles for the next five years afterwards? Exactly, yeah. Unless politically they decide a new thing. I think probably that's the, 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 the extended version of what's happening today. I highly doubt that there is a capacity even from, from the operator. If you would ask me, of course, I would try, I would like to try to have 3000 uh, mopeds in the street, but when it comes to usage from the, the Parisian and when it comes to profitability, it's, we are swimming in, in unknown water. So I cannot even tell if it's really profitable, if there is really extensive usage for 9000 mopeds. I think that's probably the, the potential. And if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, there was a consultation from Paris City before the tender. Mm -hmm. They asked all the current operator, okay, what, what is the potential you expect in Paris to be? And if I'm, uh, if I remember correctly, Axel, my president said that around nine to 10,000, 9,000 to 10,000 mopeds would be the adequate number. So mm -hmm. probably we'll try, but uh, you're not forced to have those 3,000. So mm -hmm. what are some of the main learnings that you've taken from the first five years that you've heard about from the team now then when you enter the next phase. So one is the switch on the vehicle, going to an electric vehicle. But what are some other topics where you expect to, the, to, to find the most potential to have this profitable growth? I know we had this discussion just before uh, about key pillars uh, on the market. You mentioned hardware, obviously, when you come with a larger OEM like Yamaha. That's, that's a real game changer for us because... When you, when you control the whole cycle, that makes such a difference when it comes to spare part costs, when maintenance and reparation, you also make the product evolve. You, we always quote companies like Lime or Tier. Mm -hmm. They are amazing in the way they make evolve their own product, meaning every six months there is a new version with more safety, with more space, with more comfort to drive and so on. And I think that's also something you can reach when you work with a company like Yamaha. Then there is a software, and that's also a part of your expertise. It means there is the, the be best interface for the user, but also for the team that are taking care of the operation. And so most of the innovation happens actually no? that, in, that, the, in the operator. I think so, because there is, if, you, if we speak today about profitability, uh, profitability also comes from your ability to maintain, operate in the best way possible. Mm -hmm. And the last part we already started to mention a bit is how you extract the maximum value from your customers. It means pricing, it, me it means uh, customer segmentation and so on. Yes. And also on the other side, they have fraud prevention, um, basically the revenue collection and the fraud prevention and damage prevention. And I think, yeah, there's a lot that still has to happen. We talked a little bit about Paris for you as your like, say more traditional home market, the outlook there, the tenders coming up next five year horizon. But are you also already sharing any plans beyond Paris or even beyond France for Troopy? Maybe it's too early, but maybe you're already able to share like other outlooks, other ambitions to go beyond Paris. I think when I when I mentioned Troopy 2.0 was also part of my job desk and part of my DNA in the end. You could ask Johan about that, but if you, we we are forced to come with a plan that kind of um, en englobes the the whole Europe, of course it comes it needs to come step by step. 
Paris, as you mentioned, is a really important first step for us because it also uh, shows that we are able to dominate our own market because mm -hmm. that's super important. And we need to make our proof with a large fleet inside the same city mm -hmm. before going expansion crazy. Mm -hmm. And that's also the learning from the past. You mentioned before, okay, what did you learn from the last five years? Mm -hmm. We learned from ourselves, but we also learned from our competitors. Mm -hmm. And we know that there were, there were two major mistakes that could be done okay. from expansion. Mm -hmm. First one is replicate same model in larger city outside France, mm -hmm. Milan, Barcelona, Berlin. I can quote a lot because each market is super localized. And the second one is uh, going to really small city without a profitability plan. If I go to uh, Dresden or Leipzig, mm -hmm. I need to have a plan how to get profitable there. Mm -hmm. So starting from this, um, for, for, for the, from those two points, I would say expansion plan is obviously about the franchise model that we can probably discuss a bit later. And then obviously Europe. Yeah, let's talk more about the franchise model because I wanted to ask whether well, you've talked publicly about this before. I believe like Bits and Pretzels, your team was there and talked about it also. And what do you have in mind with that? Why do you think your Troopy would be more uniquely positioned to benefit from a franchise model? What advantages, practically speaking, compared to more the default model of hiring some local, hiring a local team, launching directly a market? So to answer your question, I think there are two major points I want to state. The first one is what's in, inside our DNA is also the ability to provide mobility to a maximum of people, mm -hmm. which is our way of sharing, basically. That's the first thing is really a DNA of going to untapped zone and provide the best of what we can provide, which is basically a unique moped ha uh, handcraft, I would say, by the one of the best, which is Yamaha, and the operation that we are developing now uh, in a larger city. And also to the second part would be to provide that to the network of dealers. Because yes, of course, there are the users. If you live in a small city in France, uh, where I'm from, there are plenty in Alsace, Colmar, Mulhouse. If you live there, you are happy to have such a nice sharing uh, possibility to use a nice moped and to just do five kilometers somewhere and come back two, years, uh, two, 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 two hours after. Sorry, But on the other hand, there is also how you revitalize the network of dealerships. Because you mentioned Flixbus before. Flixbus, one thing that, is, that was super shocking for me, and probably that's also what the founders would say, is like you arrive in a market that was still in the 80s in their head, right? Mm -hmm. Having paper agenda, doing all their business by calls, faxing the invoice. Mm -hmm. And I, I, would, I, I wouldn't uh, say that uh, automotive industry and two-wheelers industry is a bit the same. But there, are, there is still a lag of competency, especially when it comes to technology. So if you bring this technology to a nice network of 200 franchises in France, you give them the opportunity to put one foot in the 21st century. And that's something you want to enable for them because of the, let's say, parent company, if you can say that, or founders behind Shupi and their footprint in dealerships or like um, importing and selling to dealers, being a distributor you have these contacts and you basically want to activate this network of dealers as franchise partners that you would supply with technology, knowledge about operations, probably the brands. They would be all under, under the central Troopy brand, um, so the marketing. And then they would own local operations and local business decisions, even like, for example, around pricing or service areas or so, or how how independent would these franchise partners possibly be? But that's a good that's a good question. And you know, franchise means everything and nothing in the end. Yeah, and, it could be. 
And for us, the, the first thing would, would be to say that CapEx are deported to, to the dealer, which is, I think, totally fair to say that they buy the scooter and they operate on their own. Of course, we come with the nice uh, books of rules that say, okay, that's how you operate in general. That's the trademark we give you. That's the, all the softwares we give you and the ability to use it and to optimize it. Of course, pricing will decide that together, but ultimately they should be responsible for their own pricing. We, we, we can only um, probably give them some advice, but I can also give you um, part of the idea we have when we want to collaborate with those partners. We are working with a Berlin company base, which is called Plan A. They do carbon uh, footprint uh, and um, analysis and reports. Uh, we are doing that for Trupi business. Mm -hmm. And part of the idea would be also to say we bring this, this type of software to the dealers because they are not forced to do it now, but ultimately in 2026, they will be forced to uh, declare the carbon footprint and how, how are they willing to decarbonize. Mm -hmm. And so if we do that now, we are already putting this technology in their hands and say, responsibilizing mm -hmm. them to oh. say, okay, uh, how do you recycle your oil? How do you recycle your tires and stuff? Because mm -hmm. that's going to come out at some point. So that's also the, mm -hmm. the work we are doing them to, with them together. So in a way, if you imagine the parent company has been like a distributor to dealers before supplying them with the vehicles, but now helping these same dealers to yeah, make some progress in their digitization, um, uh, transition from ownership to sharing business models, and maybe even in their like decarbonization efforts or documentation requirements that they have. Yeah, exactly. And it's also really important to understand that Uh, Two-wheelers is still a surging market. I think there is still yeah. a market yeah, for yeah. people who want to buy a nice moto motorcycle, right? Yeah, in Germany, plus 400% year-on-year for e-mopeds, for example, last year. Yeah, And that's going to be a bummer anyway. So uh, our assumption is quite, is quite easy to say in city centers, it's fair to assume that people, they will use sharing mobility at some point. Mm -hmm. And if it's e-mopeds, it's good for us. Mm -hmm. Because if you want to do the nice two, three kilometer ride from the train station to, I don't know, the town hall, then you can do it with shared mobility. Mm -hmm. But on the weekend, if you want to go out with your wife and do 40 kilometers, you still do it with a motorcycle. And that's probably the assumption we want to make. And we are driving still, uh, we are a way to acquire a customer for them also, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. to also do the yield for their yeah. workshops. Low barrier to entry, um, just use it and maybe eventually buy or maybe not just be a frequent sharing user, basically. Yeah, exactly. And the lines are blurring probably then between the rental, leasing and like ownership models. Um, I would like to switch gears a bit to talk also about a different topic that you've written about and that we touched on before we started the recording, which is important to you and you bring it into the company now, but it's not tied to mobility. So around inclusion, um, gender equality, it's not the most common, I would say, today um, that um, as a, you know, white, male with good education, whatever, like from this group, you would be investing time into this topic and speaking about it. How did this come up for you? What are you doing in this area? Why is this important to you? As you said, it's quite uh, petty to say that coming from a white male educated, coming uh, from business school and engineer school. But I always live with this motto that if you don't act, then nobody will do it. You know, if good guys don't, don't act, then nothing's going to come out. Uh, I was at the motorcycle trophy uh, last year with Axel. Uh, it's a mm -hmm. really famous event hold, held in Paris. You have all the big brands, Honda, Yamaha, Suzuki, and so on. 
I was at the table with only white males, basically. Yeah. And the, the, the whole hall was uh, filled with 95% of males. And I was like, that's part of the problem. I don't say it's good or bad. It's just how society builds it, right? Mm -hmm. And if I don't act, then nobody will do it because the, I will just replicate a company like people did before, right? And I think that's our generation to also um, take take action when it comes to those topics. Of course, it's not profitability driven. Of course, it doesn't bring any additional traction, but I would say it attracts people with values mm -hmm. or at least, at least people with matching values. Mm -hmm. So that's also why um, I engage with a lot of, in, in a lot of those topics inside internally, we, we, we created what we call the Troopy Academy. Mm -hmm. And I don't advertise so much on that because it's only an internal tool. It's kind of a, a platform where you have uh, YouTube, YouTube videos, you have podcasts, you have mm -hmm. articles written about basically what is gender equality, what is okay, what is not okay in a company, mm -hmm. but in a really educated way, meaning that we don't judge people. I don't judge people for, for wrongdoings, you know. I just say that's not going to happen in my company mm -hmm. because at some point, yeah, people, they need to be safe. And I don't only speak about women. I also speak speak about inc inclusion, about gender diversity, come, come as you are, basically. And I think to do so, you need also to have this humility to say, okay, I'm part of the problem, but hopefully I also try to be part of the solution. And by saying that, uh, especially at police in December, I had the chance to join the one group at the European Commission to, to, work, about, to work on that. And funny, funnily, uh, in that group, I'm the only guy. Okay. Imagine, yeah. And in, during this conference, which was actually, I would say, sadly funny, I was the, inside the only presentation. There were 200 people in, in, the, in the room. There were three guys. And so, of course, the, all the question came from ladies, uh, women. And at some point, they were discussing into each other. And one girl say, was like, yeah, but don't you realize you're part of the problem? And I'm like... Of course, I'm part of the problem, but if you keep on gathering 200 ladies discussing each other, how do you want to solve that? So you see, it's kind of running around mm. again. So on the inclusion topic, you mentioned that you've gotten active because you're not, might not be directly affected, but you somehow have to be part of the solution. And now you encounter, um, and often you're maybe the only male speaker or the only guy in the room on these topics. What does all this mean when you um, build up your company now? You mentioned you, there were about seven people when you arrived. Now it's 70 people. You get to influence a lot of people's experience. Could be even like directly their career, um, how it advances or at least the day-to-day -day normal experience. How do you, where do you practically come across this in the company? What does your leadership team look like, for example, breakdown? Do you have certain fixed rules? You say, okay, now next hire has to be a woman or how do you try to operationalize it? So that, that's actually, again, a, a really interesting question because, uh, as you know, mobility, it's not super women-driven uh, business so far, unfortunately. So I hire the best people I can hire, to be honest. I also chase people. So sometimes I just randomly call people I know. I'm like, why don't you come to Troopy and build that with me? You know, mm -hmm. uh, I leave you the floor to do whatever you want. That's what I did with my chief of staff, with my secretary general, so both amazing women. So I try to be as uh, flexible as I can while still keeping the, pari the, the gender parity. But I mean, on a day-to-day, -day, I, I try to be uh, as flexible as I can also on their to-do list. So we have to do the day-to-day -day base, but I can also give them nice extra, extra projects that they can work on. For instance, we are working on um, um, a project for disabled people, which is also super niche because uh, disabled people are rarely treated in mobility. 
in the workplace or as users of your mobility service? It's basically both because uh, for us, it's good to show also the example because we don't want to be just those people who claim on LinkedIn that we do stuff, but don't apply them home. But also we try to find the correct way how to create shared mobility for people who are what we call uh, vulnerable, mm -hmm. can also be senior people, for instance. So it's not heavily disabled people because th those are really on a specific medical care mm -hmm. track. I could see that in ride hailing somehow, or maybe in car sharing, but how do you make that possible on mopeds? And that's, that's, really <laughs> and that, that's, that's a good question. So yesterday we were discussing with the big boss of Yamaha uh, because they are on the concept on the electric, yeah. shared electric wheelchair concept, but that's going to be too complex for us. So probably we try to more tackle the, the final destination problem more than the usage itself. It means probably it's not going to look like a wheelchair, but maybe more like a golf cart or something that can actually <laughs> drive people like a transport transfer on the mound, you know, or something like this. So, but we are trying to experience that uh, with the Olympic Games in our head, meaning, okay, uh, how really? Do, yeah, how 2024 do you, Paris? 2024 Paris. That could be uh, even requirement, maybe. It's, it's something they are looking into. I know they have uh, probably um, some difficulties to make it match because it's uh, really a scarce, it's, it's scarce uh, market in the end. Mm. You have vulnerable people because they are senior. You have mm. people because they are blind, you know, mm. plenty of problematics to treat. Uh, so how do we address that? We work with a really famous association in France called Agence pour le handicap, mm -hmm. APF France Handicap. Mm -hmm. And they help us because they give us the data, basically. Mm -hmm. They give us the data. Okay, that's the type of people you try to address. Mm -hmm. And now the next step is to work with their tech lab. And basically, we do focus group. Like mm -hmm. uh, when you want to create a new product, you have focus group of people who are disabled or mm -hmm. blind or whatever. And they just tell you, okay, that's how I envision it. How do you pay when you are disabled, you know? How do you pay when you are senior and you do not have an iPhone? Mm -hmm. all, all those problematics. Trying to tackle like, really a lot of problems at the same time time and like the scaling task the profitability task the regulatory side making sure that it's not all of a sudden excluded and then making it as equal um, diverse accessible as possible at the same time what are like the short-term priorities 2023 that have to go right so that we will hear for example next year in two years about Ruby, you know going to the limits of the paris tender and like thousands of vehicles, um, expansion beyond. What's the short term when you have this kind of transition to a stage two expansion is coming? What's important this year for you? I will probably answer by um, a thought about what's so difficult to scale uh, in the short term, in the short, short amount of time. I would say that the hardest part is giving maturity to the, to the team. So first you need to, to have a new team. It's a new team, exactly. And on top of that, we make the bet to hire young people to give them uh, more stack, more, more flexibility to grow as a human being and also professional workers. But the only thing you cannot compress is time. So it means that if someone needs to get better and better at his job, they need, they need time basically. So that's, that's the hardest part because scaling a fleet, you know how to do it. You know how to integrate the, the IoT box, you know how to put them in the, in the street and how to learn from the data. I would say for 2023, what's really matter, and that's going to be the crucial term point for us, is to be solid on the basics. It means that you need to have a strong team, have a strong decision process, learn learn from your mistake, and operate even better version of yourself. And then scalability will come. 
and then franchise will come. But you also mentioned that there will be fundraising on the horizon again um, this year. You're now going really into the scaling mode. So you've added first outside investors. There should be more coming in the near future. What do you think they are mostly uh, looking for? Maybe you're already getting these questions. I'm not sure how advanced it's sort of, or if you're already out there at the moment, but what are they mostly looking at at the moment for, for growth investors into um, shared mobility? If I look into Troopy's past, the first fundraising we've done with Motul, so an oil company based in France, um, the hardest part, what they invested basically in an idea and also the mm -hmm. background of my president. Mm -hmm. Now they see that things are getting more structured. So they see, okay, basically there are scooters in the street. Obviously, the next step is profitability, especially in this market, especially in this year, 2023, when you see and you hear a lot of stories, you hear that profitability is not, it's not a given. What are the lead measures in a way for profitability that you are also maybe trying to use right now in these conversations? Because you don't want to wait until it's reached. You want to already raise money maybe beforehand. But what are you already using that you can show people that it's on the right track? So I always use as a good old consultant the build-up theory. You know, you, you know that uh, profitability comes from few variables. Of, of course, you know them by heart. The minute driven, the price per minute, the rotation, how many times the scooter is used. Mm -hmm. My, my take is that the rotation is also based on a lot of variables that the more you, you manage them, the more you are close to your goal. It's maintenance and spare parts. That's really one of the crucial parts because that's where you really spare a lot of money if you work with a major OEM. It's your experience as an operator, basically the quality of the team you hire, the availability rate you have, the closer you are from, from 100%, the more profitable you get. Of course, there is pricing and we are not there yet at all. It means having a flexible pricing, having this smart pricing approach that you can extract maximum of value from a maximum of customers. And of course, your ability to scale quite fast, new product inside even the, even inside your offers. For instance, at Troopy, we do B2C. We also do subscription. We also do corporate sharing. Your ability is to uh, say, okay, those are the type of services I want to, to, to propose and to propose that the maximum of clients. But my take as a, as a managing director is to say, okay, what's the crucial point? And for us, it's B2C, it's free floating. So how do you get profitable on free floating? While especially it has not been proven so often. Mm -hmm. I would say that City Scoot in Paris, they say they are profitable and I, I'm actually willing to trust them from mm -hmm. time to time because they operate really a lot. Maybe Lime said some days ago they are profitable, but on an EBITDA basis, so before depreciation of the vehicle. So I don't know if that's like a big chunk that's not taken into consideration. I'm not sure how it's defined in City School. To be honest, that's that's the question they are looking into. We are a Series A, launching a Series A now this, this month, so it's still a growth phase. Yeah. And those investors that will come, probably not VC. We hope so, but probably it's more going to be uh, family offices and corporates, right. those people, they either way want to stay with us for a long run, mm -hmm. saying, okay, we learn from the technology, we test and learn new stuff, or they just want to see, okay, show us that you can be profitable everywhere. Mm -hmm. And when you went into like KPI struggling for free, you mentioned the, the, the turnarounds, pricing, the cost side. And I feel like from these three, the turnaround is kind of some of the most interesting or maybe hardest to influence because Cost, I can imagine you break them down, you tackle the biggest ones. Somehow, maybe it can be negotiated. On the pricing, we can imagine there could be more sort of discrimination, more kind of intelligent revenue management. But the turnaround, how do you, what kind of experiences have you made and how are you trying to influence 
number of rides per day, basically turnaround of these vehicles. Is there like a trajectory there that you are seeing where, where there's some good findings already, how to improve it? Or like what are maybe other lead metrics of that or increasing turnaround? How do you guys think? That's actually funny because we are, uh, since we are relaunching basically our fleet and jumping from thermic to electric, we are seeing the, the, the rotation turnarounds growing mm -hmm. and it's quite easy for us to see because we do A-B testing on that. Mm -hmm. It means we start from zero, obviously, and we see that marketing on the long run mm -hmm. works. We also see that street marketing is a quite strong asset for us. It means you give flyers, you give promo code, but that's not sustainable on the long run because you basically give away money. So there you, you see that turnarounds helps you to do acquisition. Uh, as I mentioned, maintenance and reparation provide you this availability rate, which for me, it's super crucial because the closer you get to 100%, while most of the company um, on the moped sector, they are more closely to 70%, which Availability means, of the mopeds. So at any time, 30% of the fleet is in, um, I don't know, maintenance. Yeah, maintenance or taken or whatever, but you know... Uh, and, and yours is 5%. So far, we are at 95%, exactly. And that's super satisfactory for us because it means when you have 600 scooters in the street, which is the case today, we have 30 scooters that are just on slight maintenance or just checkup. So and basically that, means you lower your... Hardware cost by 25% if you have only 5%, not 30% in maintenance. If you break it down, you basically pay every day the leasing of the scooter. Mm -hmm. And if you have 25% of the scooter you pay every day for providing you zero euro, then it's a wrong calculation. So that's also part of my job and our head of operation. So you mentioned for the yeah, turnarounds, for the number of rides per day, marketing works. You've, you have experience with different channels and so on. You can drive demand to that. Do you also have visibility into like the supply demand match success in a way? So if marketing generates demand, people are opening the app, they're checking for something close to them. But in how many cases are they also finding a moped when they're opening the app that's in walking distance, whatever you consider acceptable? This kind of supply demand match optimization, is that also something you guys are tackling? Or you think that's not really the problem because we have Like in our business area, very good availability. It's more about generating the demand in the first place. It, it's a mixed answer I will give you because the, the, the second part, which is uh, we need to, do to drive acquisition first. Mm -hmm. So from my calculation, we need around 150,000 registered users to have a certain amount of regular users that then will provide the, um, the adequate amount of rights per day. That's really interesting. I'd like to give people some like framework, some orientation. For the fleet size that you are targeting at the moment, maybe you can kind of mention it again, which kind of point you're using for that, because it's also dynamically growing now, but 150,000 users would be the adequate base to have high utilization on approximately how many vehicles? That's for the ultimate aim of the 3,000 scooters we will okay. have at some point. But so it's in theory like 50 users per scooter approximately. Yeah, yeah. Bas basically with 3,000 scooters uh, a year, you do a million ride. If I... Uh -huh. If I break it down, so you have to find, okay, if you say you have five to 10 usage per, per user, then you can make your calculation. Mm -hmm. It's also fair to assume that the, um, there is a market in Paris and we know that this market represents around 200,000 users. We also are deep diving into something which means how can we attract new users that basically were never tapped by CityScoot or all the others. Mm -hmm. And we have a target, which is the women, mm -hmm. uh, the women group, because Women, they need to be convinced to go on a scooter. So interesting. 
And what we are launching, we launched actually last month, it's dedicated uh, training session for them. Uh-huh. Sounds super matches when I say that out loud. <laughs> and that's what my friend told me. I, I, I texted on our WhatsApp group from the school and they were like, oh my God, but are you kidding me? It's super matches to do that. And you know what? We had so many registration because sometimes women, they just want to be among them and not uh, finger pointing. Ah, you don't know how to drive. Do you have visibility into the demographics for your users? So like percentage of active users that are male versus female for Mopichin? From what we see, it's around 87% of our users are male. And we know that it's uh, the correct ballpark. Extremely skewed. So you have a huge potential. And you think that at the moment, about 250,000 people in Paris are Mopit sharing users. And you would need about 150,000 to have high utilization on a 3,000 vehicle fleet, make a million trips per month, probably. Um, Or per year. Per year, per year. Per year. Okay, sorry. No, no, that's fine. But, and, and you know, the, so... What what we do see is like the 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 untapped market is probably people who are never rich. As I mentioned, women is uh, is one. Mm. The second part would be the correlation between uh, Kickstarter a scooter user and moped users because since the regulation tends and I would say tends into bracket uh, be more strict in Paris about Kickstarter scooters uh, because of uh, accidentology and stuff. Probably we expect that there's going to be um, kind of a rotation of the, this usage also towards mopeds. Yeah. So that's high acquisition we can also expect from them. Can you give us a feeling for what numbers on the street look like there? We talk now a lot about mopeds, of course, your current uh, case. You said there's going to be tenders out there for 9,000 mopeds. But meanwhile, number of bike sharing bikes on the street, um, kick scooters on the street is a factor maybe 10 or so higher, right? Like, do you have this or behind you to give us a feeling for... When there are 9,000 mopeds, how many bikes will there be? How many kick scooters will there be in Paris? For Paris, I'm, I cannot be sure because, you know, we have um, a voting, votation yeah. uh, in April for the Kickstarter um, mop- fast scooter. So probably the, the factor is two or three from what's existing currently. I know that in Europe in general, and probably, you know, the, the figures better than I do, but for the bikes, it's factor 10, probably something yeah, I like think so too, something like this. It's like 150,000 bikes in Europe, while it should be around 15,000 uh, mopeds, some, somewhere like that mm-hmm. in in a ballpark. So uh, that's probably how I see in Paris. It's also a lot of bikes. Also a similar ratio in Paris. It's a similar ratio. We, we discussed uh, in police with the mayor of Amsterdam. It was really interesting because uh, it was said that the infrastructure is what drives actually bike usage. Mm-hmm. It's not the availability of the bike. Okay. It's the comfort to know that I have my dedicated lane, that it's secured. And I think we see that in Paris, a huge effort has been made, if I'm correct, around 200 kilometers of bike lane were made during COVID. And also the major difference is like they really separated from the road, you know, mm, yeah. because if you are, um, I don't know, a mom with kids, you, you, you feel safer if you have really this beton separation between the road and the bike lane. So, Probably that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's very visible when you when you go there now. And for you as a company, traditionally coming from market sharing, now focus on expansion, growth. Of course, this first uh, order of business is to make it grow in mopeds. But any ideas <laughs> or any position at the moment around bikes already as well? If we just mentioned it's actually overall a much bigger market. So how my president would would answer would be. That Yamaha invented it, the bike, the GA bike, uh, in 1988, some, somewhere like that. So the first electric bike was made by Yamaha, the, mm-hmm. and the motor, the the engine, 
are built in uh, Motobecan um, factory in France, in the north of France, in Saint-Quentin. That's where our NEOS, the 50cc, is assembled and will be produced exclusively in France in 2025. That being said, uh, of course, bike stays in the corner of our, of our heads. Uh, Yamaha just launched this year three new bikes, new e-bikes. Uh, one cross country, one uh, normal bike, and one uh, really for the for the the forest, and that's something we we want to explore with them. But obviously, uh, it's going to take time because first of all, again, we need to be strong on our basics. Twenty twenty three will be the year of proving that moped can be profitable in Paris. But of course, if we can benefit from such a technology, and when you see the the range and the portfolio of bikes that are available on the market. You are happy to know that your provider, Yamaha, can provide such strong bikes, which on top are interesting because they are not the classic e-bikes, you know. I think what's the maturity on the e-bike market, it's still to be developed and proven. Of course, you still have nice bikes currently, but probably the version of 2026 will be way much nicer, uh, whatever comes out. But from Yamaha, they have such an expertise in frames and wheels and engine. That we are sure that if we want to do a, a fleet of bike or cross country bike to be shared, that's going to be a success. But each step after after each other, probably. That's super interesting. There was so much um, to learn about, and we often say here in the team about our industry or products in the industry: easy to learn, hard to master. So it's like on the surface, it's kind of easy use an app to open the thing, close it again. But then the complexity, the different models below it, so. In your case now, today, what we discussed kind of coming at this business from a distributor angle and seeing how you can also, if you now, when you now want to expand, leverage the existing dealer network, but then yeah, doing it in the city that's kind of like sharing capital of Europe in this whole also tender situation where you mentioned this before, uh, we all started recording again, some of the big ones who originally applied actually are now out of market sharing or out of business, maybe entirely. So it's like super dynamic. Congratulations to the new role, basically. It must be a lot of fun uh, going from 7 to 70 and so now beyond. And hopefully funding will be successful this year. And then, yeah, roll out tens of thousands of vehicles soon, like you basically envision. Then uh, thanks for the, the, the support. It's really appreciated. I, I know that it's... Um... It's not a, a calm journey and probably you can uh, share that with me. I, I know you, you've been there for 10 years, so you probably have seen a lot of um, entrepreneurs that told you that they're going to conquer the world. And that's always uh, made on details, right? So mm -hmm. that's why also we focus on the basics. And hopefully one day we have 10,000 of mopeds, e-bikes in the street. But I mean, today the priority is to profitably scale the, the company, uh, structure the team, make it more mature, and also be sure that we exploit the correct mopeds at the correct ratio. So that's probably for 2023. And let's discuss 2024 next year. Let's do it. Let's meet again next year. And I will come to Paris this time. You're more than, you're more than welcome. You know it. Thank you. <laughs>